Cyber Seniors and Epic Deliberate Digital are nonprofits that address social isolation among seniors and give rewarding volunteer opportunities to youth. Learn more about their no-cost training and start helping seniors in Utah on the Connect page of krcl.org. Welcome to Radioactive, a show that plugs you into grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones, and tonight on the show, we're going to check in with State Senator Derek Kitchen about the fallout from the Utah legislature's special session earlier this month. In our conversation, the senator touches on lawmakers cracking of Salt Lake County into four congressional voting districts, bail reform, the notion of a citizen's agenda versus a politician's agenda, and more. In just a minute, we're going to get to Compass, Repertory Dance Theater's use of history as a guide to the present. First, a guide to helping out folks in our community this holiday season. There are many organizations collecting items for those in need this time of year, and I've started a list to help you connect with them. It's on a blog post at our website. I've collected a list that's growing, and if you have one, of course, please send it to me, radioactive at krcl.org. First of all, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Utah. Local businesses host their donation bins to help make donating your used clothing items more convenient. Please remember, larger items cannot be left outside of these bins, but can be donated at their attended donation centers. I've got a link for those as well. They accept your used item donations seven days a week, folks. The Gateway's annual holiday tradition with Utah Food Bank Food Drive is November 20th. The Gateway Downtown Salt Lake, 400 West and 200 South. And on the 20th at seven o'clock, they are gonna flip the switch on the lights for the holidays. There'll be live music as well until nine. And they're accepting non-perishable food donations and cash for the Utah Food Bank. The International Rescue Committee of Salt Lake City is seeking items for its clients. You can join their efforts by gathering much needed in-kind donations to assist newly arrived refugee families and individuals as they work to regain control of their future and positively integrate into our community. The Other Side Academy has its own angel tree to help create a memorable Christmas for their students who are rebuilding their lives. Their holiday celebration is filled with gratitude and family-like connections for folks that often don't have them. For many of their students, it will be their first peaceful, healthy, and sober holiday celebration. So they're looking for donations of new clothing, shoes, and other daily essentials. Details at krcl.org or angeltree2021.funraise.org. Fun, F-U-N. Salt Lake County has its annual giving tree with Salt Lake County Aging and Adult Services to bring a little holiday cheer to homebound older adults. So there's a giving tree at Salt Lake County Government Center's South Building Atrium. That's at 2001 South State Street in Salt Lake. You can pick a name off the tree, shop for the gifts, and then return them to aging and adult services. Caseworkers will deliver them to homebound seniors, the majority of whom wouldn't get a holiday gift without your generosity, folks. And thanks to a generous donation from AARP Utah, Aging and Adult Services is undertaking a holiday card writing campaign so that every senior gift recipient also gets a handwritten personalized note. Of course, with all of these organizations, donations are tax deductible. Volunteers of America of Utah is looking for new or gently used clean and sorted clothes for its Center for Women and Children, Geraldine E. King Women's Resource Center, its Youth Resource Center for Homeless Outreach Program, and more. We've got links on this blog post. And on December 11th, there is a warm winter clothing drive 
and they need your help to sort donations. December 11th, 10.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. at the Salt Lake City and County Building. They ask, support our unsheltered neighbors by helping Salt Lake City and Volunteers of America collect and sort warm winter clothes. The purpose of this event? To replenish Volunteers of America's warm clothing collection that will later be distributed to unsheltered individuals in need. Volunteers will be retrieving donations from cars and helping to sort them. And I've got a link on our blog post. If you go to careseal.org, it's one of the sliders on the homepage. But you can also search for Food Clothing Gift Drives 2021. We know how generous you've been to Listener's Community Radio of Utah, and we encourage you to keep giving in the community and make a difference this holiday season. Whether it's just you, your family and friends, or folks at work getting together, find a drive and, and donate. And again, you can add a drive to the list by emailing me the info or a link. My email address, radioactive at krcl.org. I'll get it posted to our ongoing evolving list. All right, for my first conversation tonight, I spoke with a leader of a dance company using history to guide us into the present. This week, Repertory Dance Theater is back for its 56th season with Compass and famed American modern dancer and choreographer Martha Graham is a touchstone for this performance alongside contemporary commissions. To find out more, let's pass the microphone to another nonprofit. I'm Linda Smith, and I have the pleasure of directing Repertory Dance Theater, and I love talking about what we do. And Compass is a concert that we're very excited about because it has such variety. And yes, we begin with Martha Graham and two pieces from the 1930s that are so relevant today. And we go right up to the contemporary work. Well, let's talk about that because you do, you take this, uh, what was once thought a lost piece from Martha Graham, and then you have some commissioned contemporary works and they really speak to each other and the times, even though Martha Graham goes back to the world wars. Talk to us about Steps in the Street. It is such an amazing piece, uh, 1936, and uh, it was uh, really inspired by what was going on in the world at that time. Of course, in the United States, there was a depression. And in Europe, there was looming uh, fascism. And Martha Graham was very um, much a a chronicle of her times. And so uh, the steps in the street was inspired by uh, the energy. And uh, I'd love to read you a quote Um, Janet Elber, who is the current artistic director of the Graham Company, says the geometry of the work is so powerful and evocative that it traveled well through times and speaks to the people of any era who are going through a trauma of any kind. And um, it is a dramatic work. Um, It is visceral. You watch it. I saw it performed... um, last weekend at UVA, UVU at their new Nordra Theater. And um, I was so touched. I've seen so many rehearsals of the work, but you put it on stage, um, 11 powerful female dancers, guest uh, dancers from UVU, uh, their dance department and RDT. And it does travel through time so well. I think it'll be a, a wonderful, powerful experience that looks so fresh the movement uh, today. So we're very happy to um, uh, provide this wonderful collaboration and uh, restage this 
dynamic work. I just want to go to Martha Graham and her um, artistic integrity for a minute, because in 1936, she was asked to take part in the Olympic Games in Germany, and she refused. Yes, yes. So many uh, members of her company uh, were of Jewish descent. Plus, she just felt that she could not um, uh, contribute her art to uh, something that was going to... um, reflect kind of a political statement. And she wanted, she wanted to uh, keep the integrity of her work and, and didn't want to uh, provide uh, that to the, to the rising fascist dictatorship. So uh, she, she was a, a chronicle of her time. And as a matter of fact, Steps in the Street is from a, a larger piece called Chronicle. Also on Compass with RDT, Hallelujah Junction, a world premiere. Tell us about this choreographer and this piece. Well, we love to provide commissions to major choreographers. And Isham Rastim, um, originally from London and uh, resides in uh, Switzerland now, um, he had, his project had to put on, be put on hold because of COVID. And when he finally was able to uh, come here last June, I I said, I don't know what you're planning, but um, you know, what's your feeling about this commission? And he said, I wanna celebrate. I wanna say, hallelujah. We're coming hopefully toward the end of a very challenging time. And I just wanna rejoice. And so I thought that was wonderful. And the piece is, so energetic and so athletic. And the, the music by John Adams with the same title, Hallelujah Junction, um, gives us a feeling of optimism. And it is a bear to perform. It is so intricate and uh, difficult. But uh, when, you, when you arrive at really sustaining what he wants in terms of energy and articulation, you feel like hallelujah. (laughs) Well, it sounds like it'll pair well with the other commission on Compass. In Compass, rather. I think it's going to be such a well-rounded program. And the piece by B.B. Miller that we are bringing back is uh, so, so interesting. It's full of stories and narrative and nuance and poetry. Um, so I, I think the whole program is going to be um, giving us the incentive, the compass to guide us with the arts back to a time where we can feel positive. Another Martha Graham piece in this production of Compass is Ecstasis from 1933. What's that one about? It's a solo for one of our most prestigious um, RDT alumni dancers, Angela Banchero Kelleher, who um, uh, is on the faculty, a professor of dance at U- Utah University, um, Utah Valley University. And she is just uh, so beautiful in this work, so articulate. And it's, it's really a piece about design, discovering what the human body can do. And um, Martha Graham was really experimenting with um, the expressive nature of the body. And so she experiments with gestures uh, of the hips 
and the shoulder and the intensity of uh, a simple design that really shows um, how the body can speak. So that's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us to see a piece that was originally done in 1933. And you've had help in the lead up to Compass getting us prepped for the stage with someone from the Martha Graham Company. Yes, Virginie uh, uh, Messini and is a wonderful teacher and um, so experienced in uh, the Graham technique and also restaging uh, the Graham work. So we have spent three weeks with her studying the technique and um, she's a wonderful, uh, uh, I, I will say restager. She, she's the process uh, that takes Graham from the past to the future. And you also have wonderful students from Utah Valley University taking part in the closer Steps in the Street by Graham. So looking forward to this, November 18th, 19th, and 20th at the Rose Wagner. How can people get tickets for this, Linda? I think you need to go online, our website, uh, www.rdtutah.org. And um, also we will be providing... um, uh, a video of the concert. So if people want to watch virtually uh, after the live performance, they can also uh, do that from the comfort of their own homes. Something that COVID is leaving us with more options to see RDT, it sounds like. Well, uh, I hope so. And I hope it's a wonderful kind of um, bridge into the holidays as we celebrate uh, the arts and the fact that we are being able to Uh, experience the arts live as well as virtually now. So that's very promising. And that's Linda Smith. I always love talking to her. She's the executive and artistic director of Repertory Dance Theater. Check tonight's show notes for a link to pick up your tickets to Compass November 18th through 21st at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center in downtown Salt Lake City. And yes, remember, there are tickets for in-person performances and virtual. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. As we slide into the holiday gift-giving season, Radioactive is shining a light on DIY creatives. We hope to inspire you to shop local. Joining us to highlight artisans at the nonprofit's third annual holiday market at the Monarch in Ogden is Craft Lake City's Angela Brown. Hey, Angela. Hey, thank you so much for having me today. So three years of the holiday market at the Monarch in Ogden. Anything exciting this year that you're looking forward to? Yes, you know, so this is number one, our first year back in person. With this being our third year, we launched this market up in Ogden in 2019. Then, of course, the pandemic hit. So 2020 was all virtual. So coming back into it 2021, we're so pleased to be in person, but we're also moving it from just a one day event. We're expanding it into two. So it's going to be a Friday night and a Saturday day. Great. We'll put a link in the show notes for people to check it out and get their tickets. And uh, you have used Craft Lake City to really empower people and in particularly diverse voices of local makers. Thank you. And, you know, part of that kind of diversity really initiative for Craft Lake City is expanding our programming to other parts of the state besides Salt Lake City. And, you know, we've, of course, really had our landmark event, our annual DIY festival in downtown Salt Lake City, which is now on the west side over at the Fair Park. But we really want to make sure that we are providing these opportunities for all Utahns. And that just goes along with our mission of, you know, really expanding this program to other areas of the state. And so that's why we are launching this um, two-day event up in Ogden. So three years for the holiday market, 13 for Craft Lake City. 
Why do you think um, handmade crafts are more popular than ever among artisans, but also the public? I believe that we're seeing this resurgence and appreciation for the handicraft and for the artisan is number one, it makes sense. It makes sense sustainability wise, really to be kind of keeping our dollars within the economy and supporting our, you know, our local government, our local municipalities, keeping that tax dollars here, but also with the environment, right? I mean, we are in the middle of a drought and we really want to kind of cut down on our waste. We want to cut down on, you know, all of those dollars that are leaving not only the state, but the country. Um, And it's really important to support local artisans to kind of keep our community members employed and keeping that artisanal craftsmanship, you know, being that's been passed down from generation to generation, um, you know, kind of keeping that alive, but also putting a contemporary spirit on it. Um, You know, so we're taking some of these these time-honored techniques and we're doing, um, you know, really innovative designs and stuff that appeals to all different types of individuals. Let's pass the microphone to a couple of your artisans. Here we go. Hi, I'm Stuart Bachelor. Uh, the Wooden Moth is my business. Um, I've been doing arts and crafts and uh, organic farming in Utah, Salt Lake City, for uh, since about 97. Um, I'm making a lot of jewelry. I've been doing some uh, relief printing, some lino and uh, wood block printing. Hi, I'm Amy Jacobs, and I'm with K&K's Bodacious Beer Biscuits. Um, I make tasty dog biscuits out of spent beer grains, specifically beer grain from Uinta Brewing. Oh, wow. How did that come about, Amy? Well, um, last Christmas, so around, well, the fall of 2020, um, I just had, I don't know, an idea. My husband works at Uinta and I was like, hey, can you bring me home some beer grain? Um, I've heard of people making dog biscuits from them. And so I'd like to make some for like holiday presents. Uh, so I, you know, tried a few different recipes and tweaked a little bit and, uh, basically gave them out to all my friends and family and all the dogs at Uinta and the dogs all went crazy for them. It was a big hit. And so I was like, well, we could actually do some good with this and um, yeah, and start making biscuits to sell to others. And then also being able to give back to local rescue groups to help um, dogs in need. So you give back, how so? So um, we just started as a business this year and um, I'm really hoping to be able to give back like 20% of our proceeds to um, starting with the two rescue groups that uh, I got my rescue pups from. So K&K is uh, for my two rescue dogs, Katja and Kahlua. And so um, Katja was rescued by rescue rovers and Kahlua was rescued by Second Chance for Homeless Pets. So I'm really looking to start by um, donating some of our proceeds to those groups. Um, I've always wanted to give out one of those giant checks to a charitable group. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then I'd really love down the line to partner with other rescue organizations, not only to just give, um, you know, money, but also maybe donate biscuits. Um, But like I said, since we just started, it's sort of ever evolving. Baby steps, baby steps, Amy. Baby steps. So when you say um, the brewing grains, are we talking after the process of brewing? So you're also keeping waste out of the landfill? 
Yeah, so it's uh, spent beer grain, it's uh, malted barley, and it's used at the beginning of the brewing process. It's actually where um, the brewers get the sugars that then the yeast ferments into tasty alcohol. Um, and uh, yeah, so I read a statistic that in the U.S. there's about 20 billion pounds of this spent beer grain that's made as a byproduct. And spent beer grain consists of the majority of byproduct from the brewing industry. So about 85% of the byproduct is spent beer grain. Wow. And you're turning it into a product that dogs like. So the, you know, furry friend parents can pop a cold one and then they can toss a K&K bodacious beer biscuit to their their canine. Absolutely. I like to, to say, have a beer with your dog. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right, Stuart, tell us a little bit more about the Wooden Moth and your connection to organic farming. Uh, the punk rock farmer is definitely going to want to have you on his show too, Stuart. <laughs> right on. Uh, so I started an organic farm back in 97. And uh, back then it was a little bit harder to make a living doing organic farming. Uh, so I kind of supplemented with uh, arts and crafts. So I've been um, focusing more and more on uh, flowers, pressed flowers. I make art out of it. And uh, a lot of beeswax products. I make beeswax candles and decorate them with the flowers that I grow. Organically, right? Organically, of course. Where's your farm? Uh, we had to sell the farm that I started at, uh, that was in Pleasant Grove. And right now I'm just doing a backyard mini farming, I guess is what you'd call you're, it. You're a punk rock farmer, just like Al. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you grow this year? Uh, a lot of it, I'm experimenting with a new place, um, first year garden. So a lot of flowers trying to figure out what, uh, what grows here. Um, in Salt Lake uh, City? A lot of, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm downtown, ninth and ninth area, and um, limited amount of space. So just trying to uh, optimize my space and see what I can produce. So then you said you you're doing some things with pressed flowers and some some lino cuts. I'm guessing you know what I really want to emphasize is this whole shop local aspect of gift giving too. So um, folks can go to the holiday market at the Monarch and and support local and get some, some great gifts. So tell us about a, an item or a, a piece that you're particularly proud of and describe it for us. Um, well, I guess lately I've been integrating the printing with the flowers. And so um, one of the ones I really like is, uh, um, well, it's a representation of Buddha's uh, flower sermon. So it's Buddha's hand holding up a, a flower. It's just simple pressed flower. But I think it makes a lot of visual impact. And uh, I really like that one. I understand you incorporate Chinese knotwork into your pieces as well. Yeah, it's a traditional Chinese folk art. And uh, I think that's probably one of the, the uh, types of jewelry that, I, that sets me apart from other jewelers. I haven't seen a whole lot of that going on. Sounds like you're very mindful. Are you a practicing Buddhist as well? I am. Yeah, I spend, um, I kind of uh, haven't been doing that for a long time and recently started revisiting. So. With the chaos of the last two years, I imagine, is inspiration, <laughs> Indeed, I right? Something. 
<laughs> well, so the Wooden Moth and K&K's Bodacious Biscuits, both on hand for the Holiday Market, Craft Lake City. Thank you so much for sharing some of your work with us. Thank you. Thank you. So the Wooden Moth and K&K's Bodacious Biscuits, just two of the artisans on hand for the two-day Craft Lake City Holiday Market at the Monarch in Ogden coming up in December, Angela. Well, Bodacious Biscuits, we're thrilled to work with them because I believe this is our first time that we've ever partnered with them to showcase their work. And their work is actually in the realm of cuisine for your pet. So think like dog biscuits for your dog, you know, kind of stocking stuffers for the furry uh, friend in your life. Um, so we're, we're really, I'm, I, you know, I've got a furry friend in my life, so I can't wait to shop for them this holiday season with Bodacious Biscuits. And then we've got Stuart from The Wooden Moth, who actually was part of our virtual market last year year. And so we are thrilled to welcome them in, in person. And actually, I've never met Stuart except for in avatar form with Lester's <laughs> virtual. That's so right. I'm thrilled to see uh, see his craft in person and chat with him about it. And I believe he's a Northern artist actually from the Weber County area. And then lastly, Craft Lake City partnering with Project Rainbow for the holiday market. What's that about and how can folks get involved? Yes, it's really important, especially with this holiday season, that we are looking to give back in some way. Project Rainbow does awareness work about LGBTQ plus individuals. And this year we're partnering with them to do a toy drive for underserved families within that realm. So you can bring your new toy uh, to our holiday markets and we'll deliver it to the Project Rainbow booth, or you can actually deliver it yourself to their booth, chat with them. You can also purchase a new item from one of our artisans and just walk it over to the Project Rainbow booth and that gift will be given to an LGBTQ plus family in need. So again, the dates and times of the third annual Craft Lake City Holiday Market and a website where folks can plan their trip. It's coming up the first weekend of December, which is Friday, December 3rd from 5 p.m. until 10 p.m. and Saturday, December 4th from 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. The website is craftlakecity.com. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets uh, there, or you can go to 24ticks.com and get them there too. Angela Brown, thank you so much. Good to see you. You too. Thanks so much again. Angela Brown of Craft Lake City. Check tonight's show notes so you can plan your trip to the third annual holiday market at the Monarch in Ogden with the nonprofit. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive. When we come back, Senator Derek Kitchen. The VA Salt Lake City Healthcare System serves veterans, their families, and caregivers. To find a healthcare facility near you and manage your health online, visit va.gov. If you're a homeowner or renter making 200% or less of the federal poverty rate and need help weatherizing your home, Utah Community Action can help. Visit utahca.org for details. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, followed by Vagabond Radio with Barbie at 8, Late Night Lowdown with Connor at 10.30, Chovy Supersound starts at 1 a.m. Listen on demand to the last two weeks of any show, including Radioactive, under the Programs tab at krcl.org. Senator Derek Kitchen, a Democrat representing District 2 in Salt Lake City, has quite a lot to say on the cracking of Salt Lake County into four congressional voting districts. That's what happened when state lawmakers met in special session and approved maps in their once-a-decade redistricting process earlier this month. In this next conversation recorded over Zoom earlier today, Senator Kitchen and I touch on that issue as well as bail reform, solving homelessness, and much more. So, here we go. 
Senator, welcome to Radioactive. I want to start with your tweets, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going back at least six days on your timeline to the special session where the once-a-decade redistricting process was underway. And you tweeted, I understand the frustration that people feel. Why, again, are we cracking the neighborhoods of frustrated people into four districts? Diluting the voice of a third of Utah's population will certainly not make us less frustrated, Governor. So you were directly addressing the, the governor there. But how about addressing your your colleagues at the state uh, at the people's house there on Utah's Capitol Hill? What kind of mood was there to even I don't know address your concerns and those of the other few Democrats in the House and the Senate? Well, one thing that's clear about the Utah Legislature is they know who's in charge, and they operate uh, with that knowledge. And what that means is there's a fair amount of confidence. Uh, among the Republican caucus because, you know, they go behind closed doors in their caucus room, they shut the door and they count heads on issues, whether we're talking about redistricting or bail reform or any other policy. And so they were really, you know, carrying themselves as though the decision had been made already. And uh, after the maps were released on that Friday evening, you know, the general public had a weekend to look at the maps, and then we jumped right into the legislative process of adopting those maps, which took place last week, Monday through Wednesday. So that being said, you know, the appetite is limited for hearing Democratic opposition or any opposition, quite frankly. Um, they do us the courtesy by allowing us to, you know, stand in our role on the floor and speak to issues as it comes before us. And, you know, we certainly had a lively debate on the issue of these new congressional um, state Senate and state house and school board maps. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, without the numbers in the legislature, it's hard for us as, you know, Democrats to stop these policies from being enacted. Yeah. You tried to float a bill, right. To get the uh, body to, uh, address the maps drawn by the Independent Redistricting Commission. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I, I did a lot. I did map. I drew my own map, first of all, just to go through the exercise. It took me, you know, about three days, a total of about nine hours of work uh, to figure out the math problem that is drawing these new districts. Um, unfortunately, the Utah legislature refused to, you know, even look at the maps that were drawn by the independent commission. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, when we were on the floor, I certainly made an effort to uh, to substitute the congressional map with one of those maps drawn by the independent commission. Uh, but that got shot down pretty quickly. Um, but I did make a, an honest effort to use the process and the power that I do have as one of 29 state senators uh, to move on the independent commission map for uh, U.S. Congress. Um, now, I don't recall which one of your uh, fellow lawmakers on the conservative side of the aisle said it, but I think m multiple did, that they feel that these maps, despite cracking Salt Lake County into four separate congressional districts, is representing Utah because we are one Utah. What is your response to that? Well, the idea of one Utah uh, seems to be bastardized a little bit these days, and it's used as a branding mechanism uh, to just ram through policy rather than think about what it truly means, which is that, you know, in a one Utah, everybody has a voice and everybody has an opportunity to bring their ideas forward. Um, and there's a seat at the table for everybody in our state. 
Um, unfortunately, by cracking Salt Lake uh, County into four congressional districts, we don't have a voice in that. In fact, they are diluting our voice in this process. And so it's actually the exact opposite of a one Utah. You know, you got to keep in mind, Laura, that one third of our state's population lives right here along the Wasatch Front. Does it make sense to dilute the voice of one third of our population? This is getting to the, the issue that I mentioned in that Twitter thread to Governor Cox. He's a, he, he, he sort of dis, is dismissive of the general public who are frustrated because we don't have representation in Congress. Uh, and, and, you know, the reason why we're frustrated is because we don't have a voice. In fact, over the last two decades, it's been carved out. You know, we've been we've been silenced, quite frankly. And, and that's a problem. Over the years, as I've talked to Republicans about this, they say, why are we duty bound to make the Democratic Party better than it is? What's what's your response to that as a Democrat, a sitting Democrat, um, uh, to the way the game or the sport of politics is is seen in this state by the supermajority, the GOP? <laughs> well, that's a big question. I, I you know I've been hearing a lot about strategy, and you know we have a lot of Democrats and people that identify neither with the Democratic nor the Republican Party. Um, unaffiliated or independent, right? Um, and I think, you know, I've been hearing a lot about the strategy of switching party affiliation uh, so that folks can participate in the Republican primaries and, you know, have a voice in which Republicans are moved forward toward a general election. I understand that strategy. But at the end of the day, if we elect moderate Republicans just to go be in that closed door caucus meeting, it still is a closed door caucus meeting. And at the end of the day, we need to have a more representative government so that we can have these debates out in the open in a more transparent manner, right? So that, so I think, I think what I'm looking for is to elect more Democrats. You know, you may not agree with everything the Democratic Party has to offer. And certainly we, we do have, you know, a variety of opinions and approaches uh, among elected officials, both at the national and the local level that identifies Democrats. But we do need to have uh, more of this alternative governing vision in order for us to push back against the Republican supermajority. I really liked how the ranked choice voting uh, felt this last election. For me in Salt Lake City, the city council person I was voting for, there were multiple candidates and I ranked them from one through whatever. I didn't even have to rank all of them if I didn't want to. Um, but ranked choice voting, at least it felt different to me. And now I'm hearing there's some talk of banning ranked choice voting because that might undo any uh, stranglehold on politics that one party can have. What did you think about the ranked choice experiment of 23 municipalities in Utah this past November? Yeah, you know, I, I supported the process uh, by which the Utah legislature engaged in allowing, you know, municipalities and counties and others to to you know, pursue the ranked choice process. I do know that it was a challenge for county clerks at first anyway. Um, I like the idea of ranked choice in theory, you know, political theory I think is always a good thing to think about. Um, and it's fun to have conversations that revolve around theoretical ideas. It's quite interesting to watch it express itself in all reality with these two dozen municipalities in, in Utah. Um, I will say that um, it does have the potential, I think, to moderate the candidates because it makes it so that they're not always attacking each other and instead cooperating to engage the voters. And, and I think that that's valuable for sure. The problem that I found with ranked choice this year, at least, is the 
it confused a lot of voters. Um, you, I would consider you, Laura, a sophisticated voter. Right? You think <laughs> okay. about this stuff a All lot. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you 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 pay attention as things are making its way through the conversation and you have a really thoughtful approach to things and you have a lot of great guests. So you've cracked into this a little bit more. Right. OK. But I think about my mom or a first time voter or somebody that isn't as seasoned when it comes to the the process. And I think that it did have some confusing elements. And uh, and so certainly candidates like myself and others. You know, if we proceed with ranked choice, we need to do a better job at educating voters and uh, bringing them to the table. Um, so I think that there are certainly um, wrinkles with ranked choice that I'd like to see ironed out. Um, and so like most things in politics, it's not entirely one thing or another. It's a bit of a mixed bag. You know, I've been paying a lot of attention to something called the citizen's agenda when it comes to politics and framing the conversation. So as a member of the media as well, it's, you know, I, I consume a lot of news. You're right. A lot of political news. And uh, I'll put some links in the show notes, folks, to a podcast recently with Jay Rosen, who's talking about this. Um, and uh, also a link to a, an actual project called the Citizens Agenda. And Senator Kitchen, it's about getting voters to drive the conversation. I, for some time, have been concerned that we're treating politics, A, as our religion, and B, as a blood sport. And therefore, we get all the commentary, the coverage of politics becomes this horse race conversation, who's in the lead, et cetera, as opposed to, hey, voters, what is it you want politicians to talk about? What is it you want them to focus on? And then having at least my contribution, small contribution as a journalist, drive that conversation. I really struggle with how to turn this around. And I know you're going to have a, a town hall later this week to talk about that. But what do you think about that a citizen's agenda moving forward? I love the idea and I appreciate the organization. Um, the thing with politics is, you know, we elect people to go you know, tend to the business of the general public, right? It's sort of the way our system is set up. And then every two years or four years, depending on which office you're in, you go back to the voters and ask for their support once again. And they have an opportunity to assess you against your accomplishments or failures or your style or lack of style in many cases. Um, but so, you know, I think that in many ways I need the citizens of my district and of the state of Utah, quite frankly, to continue to stay engaged on issues that matter to them. I think it's hard to keep people focused for a long period of time. You know, it's easy to see an issue as a flash in the pan. You know, we get really worked up about redistricting, but only the week that it's already happening, right? We get really worked up about, you know, banning transgender girls in high school sports, right? But we rally for a moment, and I say we as the general public, we rally around issues as we hear about them in the news or we read about them elsewhere or somebody activates us. But most people have lives, right? And I think that it's hard to stay focused. And so it's really key to be a part of a broader organization that I think can help keep the conversation moving forward in a constructive way. Otherwise, we we take our eyes off the ball just sort of instinctively. Does that make sense? So, yeah. you know, I, I find that, you know, I go, I'm elected, right? And I have my agenda and my priorities. And I, you know, I talk about them in terms of climate change and investments and education and, you know, holding the Republican supermajority accountable. Uh, but then when you get into the day-to-day -day, uh, nuts and bolts of, you know, and the practice of being a politician, right? Of governing? Of governing, you know, it's a lot more complicated than just, you know, you know, the issues may dictate. So, you know, I, I think one thing that I'm bumping into is, is how to how to solicit feedback 
on every single conversation that I'm engaged with or every single decision that I need to make. And, and certainly if, you know, you're in the minority, it's already a, a challenge, right? Like I'm in the minority caucus. It's already hard for me to have my voice heard. Sometimes it feels like I have to kick, scream and light myself on fire uh, just to, you know, just for people to slow down, you know, the decision. Well, then you're of accused of being dramatic, doors. right? <laughs> What's that? Then you're being, then you're accused of being dramatic, right? Yeah, I mean, and nobody wants to be dramatic, but I'm sick of being ignored. And um, quite frankly, one third of Utah residents are ignored right now. So for the next 10 years, we have these congressional voting districts, school board, not to mention. And I saw some folks on the conservative side make or actually it was Robert Gerke, maybe that the Tribune column is making a point out of this. The congressional districts are one thing, but what where voters and the public can make a difference is who they elect to school board, who they elect to their local races, and how those districts are drawn are hugely important. Yeah, I mean, I'll just be honest with you, and I don't know if I can say this on the air, but, you know, <laughs> voters were screwed when it came to the congressional districts, right? They cracked us open, they made it so that our voices are diluted, and we will never see a Democrat uh, hold a congressional seat, at least for the next 10 years, right? Um, and so what does that mean for voters that want to have their voice heard? Right. I would say focus on the legislature. Right now you have, you know, uh, just over a dozen members in the House and six senators. You know, if we just got two more Democrats elected to the state Senate, it would make a it would make a huge difference in the tone and the type of conversations, you know, policy conversations we could be having. And so. Yeah, I think, you know, I would focus uh, less on the congressional seat because it's it's a, it's a done deal. They've already diluted our voice. Let's focus on getting, you know, good uh, Democrats elected. There are seats out there that are held by Republicans that could be flipped, right? So we need to focus our energy on those seats. Same, same for the school board, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than constantly getting pissed off every time Natalie Klein says something stupid, let's get out there and elect somebody to replace her, right? That means putting our money behind a candidate. That means calling voters on behalf of a candidate. That means registering new, new voters in that district, right? We've got to get in the game. So your town hall is coming up on Friday. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, 5 p.m. It'll be uh, on Zoom and Facebook. Yeah, it'll be on Zoom and Facebook. Um, and so here's the thing, Laura, to your question about getting you know, the citizen's agenda, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just trying my best right now, and I know my colleagues are in many ways as well, trying to communicate what's happening in the legislature, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I have a town hall coming up on Friday. I've done a couple already this fall, one on the Great Salt Lake and the, you know, the dire situation uh, out there in terms of the environmental impact and the, you know, collapsing ecosystem and what that means for air quality. So that Great Salt Lake is a huge issue. I held a town hall last week on redistricting because there's a lot there's a lot of questions. And I think that the process is convoluted and scary and confusing. So that was a really helpful town hall. What I'm doing this week is just trying to engage with voters a little bit more broadly on, you know, what next? We were we lost the battle right uh, on redistricting. So how do we step back, recalibrate and move forward so that we have an opportunity to increase power in the state of Utah? You know, there's. A lot of us out here in the state of Utah that are not being represented at all in the legislature, and, and we need to to change that. And so um, my hope is that we can pivot and, you know, focus our energy on districts that we can pick up and bringing more balance into the, the state government. Because when you have a super majority and a minority that has no voice, we just need to add numbers. Um, and that's actually what Spencer Cox, Governor Cox mentioned that kind of annoyed me. 
because we already voted as a you know majority of Utahns that we wanted an independent commission. And for him to just turn around and dismiss our frustration, as that tweet thread mentioned, um, because he planned to sign the, the, you know, the maps that were created in secret by the Utah legislature. It's really disappointing for me, you know, because we already expressed our voice in Proposition 4 in 2018. Well, I want to um, bring this up because I believe it passed uh, Prop 4 that created the Utah Independent Redistricting Commission and then a subsequent compromise as lawmakers tweaked it. But it passed by 7,000 votes. A win is a win, but apparently 7,000 votes of the people is... A slim, slight, itsy-bitsy majority as far as some lawmakers are concerned with when it comes to, you know, whether they think that commission is legit. Do you think this commission is going to survive over the next 10 years? I mean, it was only a shell of what it should have been because the legislature gutted it in the session uh, two years ago. Um, honestly, Republicans show that they are willing to do what ever it takes to hold on to power. Um, and so that includes ignoring the will of the people. I think it's really cynical uh, for them to dismiss a majority of voters and to act like 7,000 is a small number. I mean, that's 7,000 people, right? We won. Mm -hmm. The people of Utah voted for an independent redistricting commission. And I think it's just unfortunate to see the Republican Party broadly uh, undercut democracy and free and fair elections. You saw this, you know, with the Trump, you know, uh, in 2020 and the big lie, the fact that, you know, you can lose something and then claim that you won and then just keep repeating the same message. So we 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 voted as a state and Proposition 4 passed with the majority of votes. It may have only been 50.4% of the vote, but it is still a majority. And, and I wonder, I guess, Laura, in this country, do we still believe in democracy or not? Hmm. Interesting. And that's going to make for interesting conversations around the halls of the Capitol as you uh, do, I think, what, one more, a couple more interim meetings, perhaps, and then a general session in January. We're talking with Senator Derek Kitchen, Democrat from District 2 here in Salt Lake City, about the special session that resulted in new voting maps for the state of Utah. It's a once a decade process. There were a couple other items I wanted to get to before our time runs out, Senator. And on this special session also was bail reform. Bail reform was passed, then it was undone. And now you all got to fix this. What's going on? Can you tell us the outcome of the special session? Well, I, I mean, yeah, you're right. We passed bail reform two years ago. And then this last session, it was undone by Republican leadership. And um, I think it's a sad state of affairs that we're profiting off of people's, you know, experience in the criminal justice system. I do not believe in cash bail. I think that it's inappropriate in the 21st century. Um, and so I, I appreciate that that effort had passed. I was bummed to see it rescinded in this last session. Uh, over the last couple of months, there had been a small work group made up of Republicans, Democrats, members of the criminal justice community and the bail community as well. And what we got was a watered down version of bail reform. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's a step in the right direction, but certainly more work needs to be done. I'd like to see bail eliminated altogether. Um, but just to, you know, keep in mind, this is how, you know, how it works in Utah. We need to get more Democrats elected so that we can have a healthier conversation around some of these matters around social justice. Uh, as I look forward, however, I do see some reason to be optimistic. Um, I'm hearing a lot of really great traction around um, getting rid of the death penalty in Utah. 
And that's something that I personally believe in. Um, there's a lot of work and resources going into emotional and behavioral health care and treatment, um, you know, issues relating to affordable housing. We need to make massive investments there. The good news is that the state of Utah is swimming in cash these days. So we have the resources to invest in our communities. Uh, and so it's a matter of just getting it done. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, despite, you know, only seeing incremental change on things like bail reform, um, we have an opportunity to get more candidates elected that care about these matters. Earlier this summer, I had the opportunity to speak with uh, folks from Decarcerate Utah and the Salt Lake Community Bail Fund. And they told me that they are not allowed on the list at the Salt Lake County Jail of bail fund options, uh, you know, of, of uh, getting bailed out. And all they could think is because they don't really charge folks for it. They don't care if they show back up to their court dates either. And I was just curious um, uh, about planting that seed with you. And when it comes to bail reform, that here's a nonprofit, raise funds from the community to help people who can't afford to bail out of jail, bail out of jail. And they're hitting this, this barrier, they say. So mm-hmm. home- homework for you, Senator. Yeah, I think uh, uh, we could definitely talk to the Salt Lake County Sheriff um, and the County Council about that. Uh, I think that we could make some progress on that here in Salt Lake. I wasn't aware of this, so I'm glad that you raised uh, that up to me. I do sit on the Executive Offices and Criminal Justice Subcommittee for the state, uh, so I'll certainly bring this up with staff. And of course, folks who are caught up in the criminal justice system are overrepresented in our homeless population as well. wanted to talk with you a bit about that when it comes to a legislative solution or support for addressing homelessness in our community. And by that, I mean our entire state, as Mayor Mendenhall has um, made it a point of pressing with your colleagues up there at the People's House. This isn't a Salt Lake City issue. It is a statewide issue. And if we're only focusing on incarceration as opposed to prime causes, we're not going to get anywhere, Senator. Yeah, I mean, it's not a Salt Lake issue only. It's not a state state of Utah issue alone. It's a national and a global issue in many ways. You know, uh, this is this comes down to the way that we treat people at a systems level, right? Um, and so, when it comes to homelessness, we've really got to take that generational approach, uh, starting with you know our kids and early childhood education, and making sure that kids have a stable environment to grow up in. That includes investing in our education. Uh, making sure that everybody in our community is covered by health insurance, high quality health insurance. Um, you know, that's why I believe in universal health care. Uh, I think health care is a human right. I also believe that housing is a human right. And I think that the majority of people in this country share that value. And so at the end of the day, it's really critical for us as policymakers and leaders uh, and the community at large to advocate for increases toward healthcare, making sure that we have enough housing for everybody. And we really need to be looking at things like basic income. You know, these are issues related to poverty at the end of the day. So that's why my focus has been and will continue to be on housing. Um, We need to make sure that municipalities and uh, local governments are getting out of the way um, and making sure that we are constructing enough uh, deeply affordable housing. Um, And, you know, I have to be honest with you, Salt Lake City is doing a great job, but a lot of cities around the state of Utah are still hung up on keeping, quote unquote, you know, low income housing out of their community. Um, And that's the wrong approach. Well, Senator Kitchen, thanks for giving us some time. I appreciate it. We'll put a link in the show notes so folks can get in touch with you, but also about your town hall, which is again, what time? 
five o'clock on Friday and uh, you'll have a link and you can drop that in for everybody. State Senator Derek Kitchen. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the senator if you'd like to share your comments with him directly. I'm Laura Jones, and that is Radioactive. Thanks for listening, and have a great night. I'm going to leave you with It's a Good Day to Fight the System, Shunguzo on KRCL 90.9.